Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. Harry Bennett about his book titled The War for England's Shores, Esports and the Fight Against British Coastal Convoys, published by Penn and Sword in 2023, which examines a part um, of World War II that somehow I was honestly quite surprised to read, doesn't get a lot of attention, despite the fact it happened really close to the British mainland um, and lasted for a pretty large chunk of the war. So, Harry, thank you so much for being here to tell us all about this surprisingly forgotten bit of World War II history. Um, My absolute pleasure, Miranda, and looking forward to an interesting conversation. Likewise, before, however, we get to the book bit of the conversation, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and explain why you decided to write this? Well, I'm, uh, I've worked for the University of Plymouth in southern England for a little over 31 years, uh, and I've written over 20 books in that time. And latterly, uh, a lot of academics, you know, we, 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 we plough a familiar furrow. We kind of revisit the same topics. But latterly, I've found that the topics have begun to come to me, and this is one of those. So in 2009, I was asked to uh, attend a boatyard in southern England uh, on behalf of the BBC. Um, they were doing a report on the last surviving German motor torpedo boat of the Second World War. And they wanted a professional historian to kind of contextualize some of the story and to find ways of actually thinking about the kind of history that we were dealing with in the situation of a wartime German vessel built in 1943, which had remarkably continued in military service with the German Navy and then the British Royal Navy, and then it was handed back to the German Bundesmarine, and it had basically seen service all the way through to the end of the Cold War, when it had been um, it had been sold off as part of the sort of military downsizing with the end of the Cold War, and I was being asked to sort of you know think about this story, and I became quite intrigued with the vessel, much bigger than you'd actually think. You know, you think motor torpedo boat, you think, you know, the kind of thing that maybe four or five people could actually get in. But this was a vessel which was 110 feet long. And as I began to look at the hull, I became kind of intrigued by the story. Because in addition to this being a kind of weapon of war, it was also built with a phenomenal degree of craftspersonship, craftspersonship that allowed this vessel such a a fantastically long period of service because it was a product of the kind of elite North German motor yacht building industry of the 1930s and 1940s. 
And I just became more and more intrigued with the story. I began to do research for the owner of the vessel who was carrying out or starting a process of restoration. So he needs plans, he needs specific histories, he needs everything that he can lay his hands on to allow us to sort of begin to engage with the story of his personal boat. And from that, then I began to move towards, well, this is really quite fascinating because people really haven't dealt with this in any kind of meaningful academic form. So I began to move to looking at all that particular class of vessels and the kind of warfare that they were engaged in in the English Channel and the North Sea from effectively 1940 to 1945. And the more I began to look, the more I began to find and the more a very interesting story began to emerge about this type of vessel, about what it tells us about the German war economy, and about how the British and latterly the Americans had to try and defeat a really quite unique weapon of war, which was capable of speeds in excess of 40 miles an hour on the water. This thing is fast even by modern standards. And a weapon of war which had the capacity through firing torpedoes to sink anything from a small ship through to the largest battleship. So I literally became fascinated by the story and in researching one vessel I began to uncover the story of so many others and indeed their victims in terms of the British coastal convoys that ran around UK waters. I always find it fascinating when a book comes out of kind of, hang on, wait, what's this? And you sort of keep poking at it and poking at it, and then suddenly it's a book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it's really quite fascinating. I mean, it's a bit like, um, uh, uh, those of you who watch commercial TV, um, it's one of the opening lines in that series called Porn Stars, Porn, P-A-W-N, where uh, Rick Harrison says, you never know what's going to come through the door. And that, in terms of my world as a historian, has been, um, that's been my experience over about the past four or five books. They've literally been spawned by, oh, here's a piece of film. What's this piece of film? Or it's an artifact in terms of a, a rather large German motor torpedo boat. It creates a different kind of set of challenges. It's not like, you know, well, I've covered the chronology of this particular piece of history and then I'll proceed to the next bit and I'll look at it in a slightly different way. It's a real challenge because it is a case of I don't know what's going to come through the door, but it creates an extra layer of fun. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Um, You don't know what's coming next, but that makes it more enticing to figure it out. Um, Before we get into what you did find, though, in more detail, can you speak for a moment about what you think, focusing on this, bringing this story out, helps us understand about the wider literature and the wider understanding of the war? Okay, so these... German motor torpedo boats, their primary victims, their primary prey, their primary purpose was to prey on the coastal convoys that ran up and down the south coast and down the east coast of the United Kingdom. These have largely been forgotten about. But as you begin to look at them, you begin to realise there's a kind of basic flaw in our understanding, or at least the literature of the Second World War at sea, 
you know, we think about the Second World War at sea and we talk about the Battle of the Atlantic. And in a sense, in terms of popular history, in terms of popular understandings, you know, once that, once a, a merchant vessel in a convoy has left St. John's, Newfoundland, and has traversed the Atlantic, weaving its way through those uh, submarine-infested waters to rock up uh, in the Mersey estuary off the coast of Liverpool, off the coast of Liverpool, that's it. That's mission accomplished. But actually, these coastal convoys represented a continuation of the of the logistics lines, which span all the way from factories in the United States and farms in the United States producing the goods to be loaded into the merchant ships. Because when it arrives in the Mersey, it's often going to be transshipped. The trains, the train network in the United Kingdom is fantastically busy. The road network is fantastically busy. So to get large convoys once they cross the Atlantic to the point where they will be used. Perhaps, for example, cargoes of vehicles that are going to need to go round to places like Plymouth or Southampton as part of preparations for D-Day, they will be transshipped into smaller vessels. And from there, they will be taken round in these coastal convoys to other ports where they will be put on land and basically placed or used according to uh, what was ultimately going to be done with them. So it's an extension, really, of the Battle of the Atlantic. And effectively, if those coastal convoys had not have been able to keep running, then you create a logistical bottleneck. You actually begin to defeat the uh, Britain scene lines of communication by picking on one very narrow section. In other words, you break up the ports, you create a bottleneck. You damage the coastal convoy network, you create a bottleneck, all of which helps to deprive the British. But in addition to that, these coastal convoys were quite significant in that they carried coal. Uh, coal from South Wales and coals from the coal field in Scotland and indeed Northern England. Now we've got to imagine, you know, coal is a vitally significant energy source. A lot of Britain's electricity stations are going to be coal fired. Britain's homes go cold without coal. If there's no, if the workers are cold and if there is no power, then Britain's war economy similarly grounds to a halt. And such is the demand for coal that certainly on the East Coast, these convoys have got to be run within sight of land six days out of seven. Without running six days out of seven, the capital, London, begins to wind down. Uh, the power stations shut down, homes go cold, and key war industries along the Thames um, simply grind to a halt. So in terms of transshipping cargoes that have crossed the Atlantic, and in terms of getting this key energy supply coal to points of usage in places like London, in places like Southampton and Portsmouth, these convoys have got to run. You defeat them, you put a big uh, chokehold on the British war economy. So 
the kind of research that I've been doing really kind of emphasizes the significance of those convoys as a vital aspect of the Second World War at sea and as a key and largely forgotten aspect of the Battle of the Atlantic. You know, the Battle of the Atlantic was not all about the Atlantic. It also extended into these coastal convoys. It also uh, extends into convoys to places like Russia. So the emphasis on the submarine in the Atlantic is perhaps a little bit unfortunate in not allowing us necessarily to see the kind of full complexity of a logistical network in which in which the Germans are very interested in doing all they can to actually stop it and break it up. So I think that's the kind of significance that we're dealing with in terms of this particular topic, a lost aspect of the war at sea. Thank you for that really helpful answer that places all of this in very useful context, both in terms of the literature and in terms of like, what are we actually talking about here? Right? What are the stakes of this conflict? So that allows us nicely, I think, to go into the actual details. So you mentioned the craftspersonship, and I think that's a fabulous place to start. Can you tell us more about what these boats actually are and how they were developed? Okay, well, the story of the S-boat, um, the Schnell boot, really, really goes back to the 1920s. And, and there are two things at play here. First of all, the, the North German motor yacht industry has been, has been streets ahead. You know, they've developed in the late 19th century. Um, they've really perfected things in the early 20th century. And they are, companies like Lursens of Bremen are turning out very, very high. Uh, class motor yachts and there's uh, a certain American banker after the First World War decides he wants rather a wonderful vessel with which he can you know race around Manhattan Island and commute from Long from his home on Long Island to Manhattan and he places an order with Lursons of Bremen. He wants an absolute showcase. He wants something which really is going to be very, very high profile, which is going to be very, very high performance. So they turn out rather a nice motor yacht for him, and off it goes to the States. The German Navy at this time which is languishing under the restrictions of the Treaty of Versailles, is interested in exploring new weapons of war, things which which can allow it, under the restrictions of the Treaty of Versailles, to potentially punch above its weight. So they take one look at this very interesting motor yacht and think to themselves, well... We could do something with that. That's very, very fast. And they're primarily thinking of use in the Baltic, uh, particularly in terms of guarding against what they see as the Russian threat. So the German, uh, the German Navy, by the end of the 1920s, has commissioned um, a small group of these vessels, which it's going to mount torpedoes on and, and cannon and machine gun, as literally a kind of an interesting experiment in, in naval craft. And they are very, very high performance. You know, their engines are going to be, uh, and this is getting very nerdy, I know, but uh, three large engines turning out 
two and a half to ultimately 3,000 brake horsepower. That means they can go very, very quickly through the water. And unlike most speedboats, which are what they call a planing boat, which you get them going so fast and the, the bow kind of lifts out of the water. They're only half in contact with the water, which helps them go fast. These motor torpedo boats are actually going to cut through the water. They are non-planing boats. That means they're much better in rather rougher seas not the roughest seas but you know up to about a sea state five about you know beginning to approach quite severe uh, uh, wind conditions these things can get the job done and the german navy begins to experiment with these in the 1920s and the 1930s and they begin to sort of perfect them the german navy still is kind of like still hankering after you know the big ships and the steel built destroyers and it comes with a certain degree of um improvisation that they begin to not only accept that these vessels are going to be useful but there's a real utility in having them around so they've built a small force of them by the 19 mid 1930s they've begun to prove their use in fleet trials uh, and the german navy is going to go into the second world war with these s boats as relatively unproven experimental but with with quite a lot of promise. So that's what the, that, that they've been developed really over about 10 years of fine tuning. Um, but the, it really comes down to the kind of quality of what they're producing here. Because these S boats are, as I say, the product of the luxury German yacht building industry of the 1930s. They are basically wooden hulled with a kind of an uh, an aluminium structure inside them, which reinforces a wooden hull. Now, that wooden hull would be very familiar to the Vikings. There's, there's literally nothing between, in technological terms, the kind of world of the Vikings and um, these wooden hulls of the, of the 1920s and 1930s. The aluminium internal structure creates something which is a lot more rigid, and then when you add to that Mercedes-Benz massive marine diesels, you have a fascinating blend of the kind of world of wooden boat building and the highest German technology. Um, it's a very interesting blend that the Germans have managed to come up with, and it's a very interesting kind of technological mix um, by the mid-1930s as Germany begins to approach the outbreak of the Second World War. It is a fascinating mix. I mean, even just that one sentence of, imagine a Viking boat, then add Mercedes-Benz motors to it. <laughs> That alone gives a great idea of what also we're looking massive, at. Also massive fuel tanks as well. I mean, these things, I mean, they're quite big boats. That's the amount of space that's going to be taken up by those three big marine diesels, plus the fuel to run them. If you Another way of thinking about them is, is actually they're almost like an Apollo rocket. In other words, the space of the human beings is absolutely minimal. It's all about engines and fuel, and it's all about how fast can you go. 
Well, pretty fast, as you're probably going to um, tell us in a moment. You've told us a bit about kind of what the goal of this campaign were, right? The idea of the ships being so close to the British mainland, um, this being a key part of ensuring that Britain is supplied. Um, But it's one thing to say, we've got this massive boat that can go really fast and this is our goal. It's another thing to obviously actually do it. So especially at the beginning of the campaign, to what extent did all of this come together and was successful for the Germans? Well, that's 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 a really interesting question. I mean, first of all, these boats are used in the campaign in Poland, in the Baltic Sea. They don't see that much action. But then when it comes to the invasion of Norway in 1940, these vessels are, are running in close to the shore. They're actually dropping German troops off as part of Germany's invasion of uh, of Norway. Still not that much of a threat. But of course... In May 1940, when the Germans break through in the Low Countries, and ultimately by late by late May 1940, the the British and French are being forced into the Dunkirk evacuation. That's the point at which these vessels begin to enter the North Sea and begin to try and strike at the um, shipping, which is going backwards and forwards across the English Channel to try and pick up troops from the uh, Dunkirk packet. And it's at that point that they they really make a name for themselves. They sink, they sink three destroyers. They begin to target one or two merchant ships along the way. And suddenly, suddenly in the midst of the Dunkirk campaign, the Royal Navy is waking up to, what the hell are these things? Because these things are very, very difficult to uh, manoeuvre against. And they're also very, very difficult to actually hit if you're trying to fire at them. You know, if you're if you're in a destroyer and, you know, you, you, you've got a number of uh, large-caliber weapons on there, it's very, very hard to establish the range of a vessel and then hit it. Because by the time you've done that with a German motor torpedo boat, uh, they've gone and they've probably already launched their torpedoes against you. So it's a realisation in the midst of the Dunkirk evacuation, you know, May, June 1940. uh, These things represent a very different kind of threat. And it's one that we're really not not really prepared to actually deal with in a sense these things are simply too quick um so what are we going to do about them and the british begin to realize that they've got a major problem and as the uh as germany consolidates its hold on um uh, france belgium and the netherlands there's a kind of realization that these things now are going to strike at these coastal convoys uh, in a, in also in association with things like the German Air Force, which is going to be dropping mines and bombs, and potentially other surface units of the German uh, of the German Navy. So these things suddenly become sort of public enemy number one in terms of some of the uh, destroyer units along the English Channel that that are going to have to meet these things potentially. Now. That obviously outlines kind of why the British were so taken aback and had trouble um, reacting. But to be honest, the story would be kind of boring if that sort of persisted through the entire time period. Um, And also, to be honest, we probably wouldn't have forgotten this bit of history um, if it was just kind of a unilateral success for the Germans. So can you therefore take us through the kind of 
inevitable next step um, to dispel the hypothetical I've just raised, at some point, the British do figure out ways to react to this. What were they? And to what extent did they combat the threat? Okay, so it's a very gradual process. Effectively, these S-boats are going to uh, take a growing number of victims in 1940, into 1941 and into 1942. Things begin to reverse in 1943. And that defeat of the German S-boat campaign, if we can call it that, comes about via a series of factors. And I think it's the complexity of the means which the British devised to defeat these S-boats that I think is really quite important. And it prefigures a lot of modern developments in terms of what we might call sea denial in the 21st century. The idea of complex information networks, which can be used in a multi-layered way to defeat an enemy, using intelligence of a variety of forms, using different kinds of units, all in harmony, so that not no one of them is ultimately responsible for the defeat of the S-boats. It's all these things working together as a kind of spider's web in which you can basically entrap these enemy units, which are so hard to so hard to locate, so hard to keep tabs on, and certainly so hard to get to grips with. So how do they begin to do it? The first thing is they begin to build the British equivalent of the German motor torpedo boat. They begin to turn out a growing number of large motor launchers and also motor gunboats and also their own motor torpedo boats. Britain begins to expand its coastal forces to meet the threat of these German motor torpedo boats. Now, the British vessels like the motor gunboat are never going to be as fast. They're never going to be as much quality as the Germans can turn out. But the fact is, the British are building them in substantial numbers. And you begin to have a battle of uh, quantity over quality. Now, the British begin to work on the basis, quite simply, that if they can put enough holes in the water, if they can begin to fill the spaces which these German motor torpedo boats are going to sort of, you know, occupy and traverse as they attempt to uh, intercept the coastal convoys, they will ultimately win. If they can outnumber the Germans four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, they will simply win. Um they may have trouble actually trying to keep up with the Germans in any sort of pursuit. But to the British, that really doesn't matter. The idea is that if you engage a German motor torpedo boat, they're probably just going to turn for home because their mission to intercept these coastal convoys at night has been has been discovered. Um, they should get away to fight another day. So for the British, simply just engaging the Germans, they think is enough because they don't think the Germans will press home their attack. And actually, this is down to one of the Achilles heels of the German motor torpedo boat. Because 
whereas the Germans are turning out quality, there's not enough quantity. So there's never enough of these German motor torpedo boats in the Channel and the, uh, and, the, and the North Sea along the East Coast for them to really press home the attack. If they end up with a, a damaged German S-boat, okay, quite a lot of work can be done in a dockyard. But ultimately, if it's really bad, then it's got to go back to one of the uh, dockyards uh, in Germany for proper repair. So the British begin simply to work on the basis that if we can meet the Germans, we kind of thwart them along the way. And then they begin to add to that other developments. They begin, for example, to uh, equip uh, what they call the town-class destroyers with new types of quick-firing gun to get over this problem of, you know, if, if you're in a standard destroyer, you fire once, well, the S-boat's already gone. They begin to change the armament. They also begin to develop intelligence networks. So the use of radar begins to extend and extend and extend. They even develop uh, special sea forts along the East Coast uh, on which you can mount both guns and indeed uh, extend your radar reach. Uh, they also develop uh, special, special listening posts so that as the motor torpedo boats are coming across the channel, uh, they tend to be a little bit too talkative which actually means that if you've got people on land trying to eavesdrop on their very high-frequency radar uh, broadcasts, you can have some warning they're on the way. And indeed, in some cases, they even put these special, uh, what they call headache operators from the earphones that they're wearing. They put them on board ships so they can literally give a running commentary. You know, the Germans are approaching, you know, they're firing at the convoy. They're now going to break left. Um, added to that, they begin to use aircraft to try and intercept uh, these German vessels. Um, in the early days, cannon-equipped fighter aircraft, unless it's broad daylight, uh, they're going to struggle. But by 1945, by 1945, they've actually got in the air, they've got radar-equipped, aircraft which are capable to, of talking to a other aircraft but also vessels on the water to direct them to in the direction of the germans as they're beginning to come from their ports they also set up set up special ambush patrols so you might have a couple of motor gunboats motor torpedo boats which are going to lie off a port like Cherbourg or Imuden in the Netherlands and they're basically going to sit there and wait for the germans to come out you also have uh, an increasing number of vessels which are going to be used as escort close into the shore. You also have um, destroyers which are going to operate in mid-channel. You're going to have specific uh, bases like, for example, Plymouth and Portsmouth, where you're going to have command bunkers which are going to coordinate all the information which is coming from, from radar, from aircraft, from ships, from these headache operators to try and vector Allied units towards where they think these German motor torpedo boats are trying to come. 
And then, of course, you've also got the Allied Air Forces that are going to target the bases in which these uh, German vessels are actually sat. This is part of the kind of multi-layered approach towards trying to defeat these craft. It's hard to go toe-to-toe, one-on-one with them. But if you begin to deploy a whole series of different means to work out what they're doing, where they're going, keep tabs on them, and vector aircraft and ships towards them in growing number, then slowly but surely, 1943-1944, they begin to throttle the German motor torpedo boat campaign. It's a really very, very modern method of warfare in coastal waters. So I think that's really quite fascinating. You know, what we imagine... What we imagine um, in, modern naval warfare to be in coastal waters they'd really perfected it against these german motor torpedo boats by 1945 that is such a fascinating uh, combination of things really uh, and i think it does speak to a point not just um in this case or even in this war um but a broader military history point that kind of quite often the solution to something is not one thing it's a combination of all of these pieces. So thank you for taking us through that. Um, unsurprisingly, it's sorry, all about the technologies as well. I mean, the you, you think you, you think about it. They've they've got to turn these kind of command centres, these command bases, into almost a sort of intelligence hubs in order to defeat what the Germans are actually trying to do. It's almost like a sort of an an, an analogue computer system where you've got these different information streams coming in. And as a result of the information that's being processed by human operators, then decisions are going to be made. Okay, we need to send out motor gunboats from this place here, and we need a force of destroyers to come out from Portsmouth to try and cut the enemy off. And I think that's, in the history of technology, let alone warfare, that's pretty fascinating no absolutely it's very fascinating so thank you for taking us through it um in some ways kind of given uh, once i'd read up to that part of the book i was honestly a little bit surprised about what came next because what you've just talked us through and of course go into much more detail in the book um suggests to me that kind of well the experts maybe that's the end of it um, you know, maybe I could see why the German command might go, you know what, this isn't really working. Okay, fine, they can keep going a bit, but you know, they're not going to be a big component in the rest of the war. And yet then we come to D-Day. And in fact, I was fascinated to read that the German command really had some quite large and specific hopes for the role that the S-boats would play in the inevitable Allied invasion of Europe. Can you talk us through kind of what they hoped or thought or planned would happen? Sure. Well, in a sense, if you think about it, from 1940 to 1943, in terms of these coastal convoys, that they're really engaged in an offensive campaign. That campaign is going to fit, continue all the way to 1945. But by 1943, by the later stages of 1943, it's clear that sooner or later a second front is going to come. 
So how do we begin to try and do something about that second front? Well, in a sense, the Germans also realised that these motor torpedo boats might be very, very handy in terms of anti-invasion craft. One of the problems with the English Channel is it's not great for submarine warfare, i.e. it's too shallow. The Germans don't have, by 1943, they don't have significant surface ships to try and disrupt the invasion uh, fleet as it begins to cross the English Channel. Um, They could try and build stuff. They could try and build an enhanced number of surface vessels like destroyers. But the problem is, of course, everybody wants steel by 1943. You know, um, the German army is crying out for more and more tanks and anti-aircraft guns and things like that. Uh, The Navy is crying out for steel in terms of its U-boats. So actually to try and meet the threat of the invasion... The idea of using wooden-hauled vessels when you've got steel in such short supply makes kind of a lot of sense. So they begin to think in terms of um, a shift in the campaign from uh, offensively trying to disrupt these coastal convoys more towards there will be a kind of special role for these vessels when it comes through to D-Day. So they begin to, under the 1943 building campaign, they move towards a situation where Admiral Dernitz, the head of the Navy, you know, he wants over 70 of these being turned out a year. Uh, Well, in a sense, in terms of where Germany's at, in terms of where Allied production is at, more than 70 isn't enough but it's kind of all they can do turning out wooden hull vessels to meet uh, an allied invasion force which is going to include you know battleships and everything down from that particular point so by 1943 1944 they are they are they are moving towards a more defensive position but at the point of the invasion in 1944 the point of the invasion in 1944 uh, they simply don't have enough to actually make a difference on D-Day. That's not to say that they might not have made a difference. You know, if we begin to think about the scenes of Saving Private Ryan, okay, it's fictional, but it's a it's a pretty good visualisation, then actually what takes place on Omaha Beach was, um, uh, it was a relatively close-drawn thing for several hours in the morning of the 6th of June. If those German motor torpedo boats had have been able to get amongst the invasion craft, had have been able to sink key units, possibly occasioning a large loss of life, then maybe that near-run thing on Omaha Beach in the early morning of the 6th of June, well, maybe it would have been even more near-run. And we, we do have some evidence for that idea. So, for example, in late April 1944, um, German motor torpedo boats got amongst a convoy training for um, D-Day to land on Utah Beach. They sank two vessels and they badly damaged a third. Um, The official death toll from that was 749. So that's two vessels sunk and one vessel damaged, and that's 749 casualties. Um, So if we begin to think about, from that training exercise, if we upscale that 
to perhaps something even more deadly happening on D-Day, then then maybe Omaha Beach becomes even more precarious. And if the landings on Omaha Beach had have failed, that would really have thrown an almighty great spanner in the works of D-Day. Um, you would have had Utah Beach cut off from Gold, Sword and Juno. And the German army would have absolutely loved the opportunity to perhaps work against a smaller invasion bridgehead, possibly picking off the landing points one by one. So uh, we know what happens on D-Day, but this is kind of, I think, an interesting what if, informed by the losses of 749 in the uh, what they call the T-4 convoy disaster as part of Exercise Tiger in late April. So, you know, the, the German strategy wasn't necessarily that wrong. Uh, in war, even a, uh, even a small issue can potentially have a large outcome. Um, it's just one of those what ifs, but I think it is worth entertaining. No, absolutely. Um, It is worth entertaining. As you said, it was already um, a closer call than we might popularly think. Um, And this very much adds an additional layer to that. So thank you for taking us through the D-Day aspect of this campaign. Um, I suppose expanding out a little bit, um, not just the kind of what happened and how it went on the water, but kind of what it meant a little bit. Can you talk about how the S-Boat campaign and the danger so close to the British shore, to what extent did this relate to kind of wider debates and concerns in Britain in the midst of war? Well, if we begin to think about it, obviously some of the sinkings involved in these coastal uh, coastal convoys are literally happening within sight of land. You know, if you stand out, uh, if you stand on Plymouth Hoe and look out to sea, you will see the Eddiston light towards the horizon. And um, if you could sort of drain the ocean uh, and you looked to the east from the Eddiston Light, you would see four wrecks, four wrecks which um, resulted from an S-boat action against a convoy uh, in, uh, in, in, in 1942, in which three merchant ships and a Royal Navy Auxiliary were lost. So the, the, this is the war at sea on your doorstep and it's happening all along the east coast it's happening along the south coast um, as far as um, uh, the furthest tip of Cornwall through to the Isle of Wight so this really is war which is very close to home this isn't just the war in the air which is close to home this is the naval battle at uh, literally on your horizon and of course who is it who's crewing a lot of these small ships which form part of the coastal convoys? Well, it's individuals from um, it's individuals from coastal communities. They're civilians. Uh, places like Tyneside, Clydeside, people from South Wales, people from Cornwall. So it means a lot within those communities in terms of what they're facing. And certainly along the East Coast, the East Coast became known as E-Boat Alley, uh, a position of absolute danger. And of course, they feel especially vulnerable because whereas in in the North Atlantic and indeed in the South Atlantic, you can use the vast expanses of the ocean of the oceans to potentially maneuver around packs of German submarines. Uh, You can begin to 
hide effectively within um, within the weather uh, and within rain and things like that. Well, on the east coast and south coast, you've got no room for manoeuvre. The Germans know you're going to be coming. You're, you're, you're running a convoy, but you're running it rather like it's a bus route. And the bus route is going to run literally almost to time simply because it has to, given the number of ships. And of course, whereas if you're in the middle of the Atlantic, um, you're probably not going to run into anything in terms of sandbanks and things like that, uh, hidden rocks. Well, along the east coast and across uh, the south coast, not only you've got to worry about the Germans, but you do also have to worry about those tidal waters, shoal waters, sandbanks, rocks, other maritime obstructions. And indeed, as the German S-boat begins to take uh, a steady toll, then you've also got to worry about the large number of wrecks, which are effectively in the kind of key channel areas that you've got to navigate up and down as you ply your business along the East Coast. So it's it's a very, very different kind of war, and it matters a lot to the communities which are immediately caught up on it. Those communities which can look out to sea, which are tied to the sea culturally and historically, they know what's happening to their people literally uh, within sight of land. So this is war at sea very, very close to home. Mm. No, absolutely. Um, Particularly, as you said, for the communities with the historical ties, kind of where everyone has some relation to those out on the water Um, this obviously would have a pretty big impact. Um, But of course, those are not the only people kind of directly involved here. Um, There's also the people in the S-boats. To what extent can we know anything really about sort of who they are and how they ended up on an S-boat? Well, I mean, there there are two principal sources that I use within the book. Um, One is interrogation reports. Um, Those S-boat crews that found themselves in the water following um, actions with the Royal Navy uh, or or, or the Americans uh, were extensively interrogated. Uh, And the book shows just how much information (laughs) they were able to extract from them often because they were relatively young, they were traumatised by the experience of capture and being on a ship which has gone to the bottom. Um, an awful lot of information, so relatively young, even even senior officers, relatively young individuals. You know, within the circumstance of the German Navy, you know, you might be given... Um, in the 1930s, you might be given command of an S-boat as a kind of, well, see how you get on with that. And, you know, if you're if you're good enough, you know, you might graduate onto a destroyer later in your career. But of course, such is the situation of the war that those relatively young officers find themselves as flotilla leaders later on in the war. They that they are still young men by the end of the war, um, and so their crews are their crews are even younger. Um, many of them are drawn from um, maritime communities in North Germany. These are individuals who you know had got some experience of the maritime world, maybe even working in a shipyard, for example. So they are close; they're as closely connected to the sea, perhaps, as those people are working up and down the east and south coasts in coasters. Um, 
what it was like for them, I think, is, is quite interesting. There are one or two other clues about just how um, oppressive things became for them because they'd usually be um, uh, housed in large hotels, uh, taken over for the duration of the war uh, in in. in in Belgium, in the Netherlands, and in France, they will be in those. They will be in those hotels as by 1943, little more than prisoners in a sense, because they knew that to go outside, well, there might be the French resistance waiting for you. So they're in a very difficult situation in terms of um, the, their freedom to actually sort of you know move about. Um, and as the war turns against them, then there's this kind of pressure cooker situation. You know, well, will we be coming back? Uh, I also uh, was very, very fortunate to be given access to the memoirs of one German motor torpedo boat commander, un- unpublished. Uh, and I'm profoundly grateful to the family for allowing me to uh, examine his memoirs. And his memoirs were really, really, A, very moving, but also really underlined some of the dilemmas and the kind of peculiarities of the kind of mindset of those individuals who were in the S-boats. So this is a guy who loved fast boats. He was from Kiel. Um, he grew up in a maritime community. His father was an admiral. Um, so he naturally sort of gravitated in, into the Navy. Um, he in part at least was sort of caught up with the, with the mythos of sort of German racial superiority. But equally, this is a guy who suffered at the hands of the Gestapo when they were investigating another case uh, against somebody else in North Germany. This was a guy who was appalled at Kristallnacht in terms of what he was seeing. But equally, this was a guy who was caught up in the kind of romance of fighting England, you know, the, the, the enemy of the First World War again. So a very, very complicated, a very, very complicated situation. But by, by 1943, this is a guy who's seeing his mates begin to go to pieces at the, at the, at the prospect of, you know, being killed in this war. This is a guy who increasingly doesn't believe in the kind of madness of the high command. You know, he's fully aware of the kinds of how many enemy units they're encountering each time they go out. They can see that the war has turned against Germany. So you see this kind of trajectory of a young man who's kind of like, on the one hand, you know, anti-Gestapo, uh, not not caring very much for the Nazis, but caught up in the kind of mythos of German superiority, fascinated by fascinated by boats, and loves the victories to the point where by 1943 he's he's turning against this. You know, this is insanity that we're keeping going with this. So we we do get some insights. We do get some insights, although you know the number of the number the amount of sources that we've got, which allow us insight into the mindset of those individuals who man the expert, is is really quite pitifully small. And uh, you know the number of veterans, um, well, very very small now, very small indeed. Mm-hmm. No, of course, um, but even what you have been able to find um, gives us at least some insight into who was on these boats. 
um, which is quite helpful, especially in understanding kind of, or trying to understand like what, what happens to them. Obviously, the fact that one of your key sources is interrogation reports gives us some idea, but what does happen both to the remaining S-boats and their crews? Well, by, by, when D-Day comes, when D-Day comes, um, the German Navy fights with S-boats and other vessels um, for about a week effectively, about a week effectively after D-Day. After about a week, then the RAF has bombed key ports like Le Havre. It's damaged a substantial number of S-boats, and the campaign is effectively over so far as the S-boats' ability to really try and contest the landing zones. Although within the Bay of the Seine, where the invasion fleet is going to be, uh, where the invasion fleet is based, and where they're going to have to continue the flow of resources across the channel, as they begin to expand the bridgehead, as they begin to break out, as they even begin to liberate ports like Cherbourg, which are going to take some time to actually get back into full production. The the battle for the Bay of the Seine, um, as a uh, as another very interesting uh, book, which is shortly going to come out, will demonstrate. It was a long running campaign. And it was one which we kind of underestimate. So, you know, the Allies lost off the coast of Normandy something like 70 vessels, either sunk or damaged, largely as a result of mine, some laid by S-boats, some laid by aircraft. So that's an ongoing, that's an ongoing problem. But as the Allies begin to expand out, then the S-boats are forced to retreat up the coast of Europe. So to St. Marlo, then further afield, you know, up towards the the Belgian border, then into Dutch waters, and by 1945, by 1945, the S boats, the the small number that are remaining, they're either operating in the Baltic, trying to evacuate German civilians from the east out of the way of the approaching Red Army, or they're in Dutch waters, doing their best to keep keep the keep the campaign going in some cases still targeting those convoys on the east coast um to try and sort of you know stem the tide of um uh, stem the flow of uh, troops uh, vehicles and stores which are going to be powering the allies towards um towards victory in Germany. Um, but they do literally carry on to literally the last day of the war. They are still operating, even though each time they go out, so effective is this kind of multi-layered net that's being deployed against them that you know they're engaged each time, they're suffering losses, but they do carry on the war until literally the last minute uh, as they as they try to um, keep the flag of the German Navy flying all the way to the end. Um, so the last S-boats meet their meet surrender in either Dutch waters or, or in the Baltic in, in 1945. Some are surrendered to the Allies. Um, uh, most of them are, have already been sunk. But in Allied service, they, they will actually continue after the war in, in various different guises. Hmm. That is 
really quite interesting um, to kind of think about the technical elements, the strategic elements, and the kind of just, well, we have to keep going, right? Even though the net um, keeps getting tighter. So thank you for taking us through that kind of then what aspect of the S-boats. Speaking of then what, um, I do have a final question for you, um, though not necessarily about S-boats. This book obviously has just come out. It is pretty new. But is there anything you've got your eye on to work on next, even if it's not about this exact topic? (laughs) No, I've I've, I've moved on to other things. In that way that stuff comes through the door. Uh, And I've I've, I've moved on to other areas. So... Uh, I'm currently working on one report for the Royal Air Force Museum. Um, So that's Air Force stuff. I'm working on two books uh, around British politics in the early 1920s, including the 1922 uh, general election, which I am reconsidering um, as a result of stuff that comes through the door, together with a volume of... uh, private papers which uh, was generously pushed in my direction by the person who'd had their hands on them Uh, and I'm also working on a piece at the moment which will come out in the far distant future which will be about uh, communist penetration of the Royal Navy and British dockyards in the 1920s and 1930s so it's a lot Mm. (laughs) <laughs> a lot but also fascinating so thank you for those little sneak pre- previews um but while you work on the various things pushed your way of course listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled the war for england shores Esports, and the fight against british coastal convoys as i said before published by pen and sword in 2023 harry thank you so much for being with us on the podcast thank you and thank you to your listeners <laughs>